Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. How are you guys? Yeah, is everybody tired today? You guys doing all right? If you're new to our church, um, my name is Dave. It's been my privilege, my joy to serve here as one of the pastors for over over 20 years now. And when you're pastor at a church for that long, you get to see a lot of great things. You get to see the arc of other people's stories. Uh, in an uninterrupted, single-cut kind of way, you know, and uh, I see God at work. I also know that for some of us, as I just prayed, um, our greatest memories of the nearness of God are in the past, but they can be also for today and for the future. And I want to tell you that no matter where life has got you right now, there is really only one hope for your future, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where you need to look if life has you down in the dumps today. We've been working our way through a series on prayer. And I was just thinking while we were singing, I apologize to the praise team that my thoughts were drifting. But um, I was thinking while we were singing how sad it would be to go through a series on prayer and not actually find that we're praying. (laughs) That would be like going to a, a graduate course in love letter writing and then never writing a love letter to your sweetie. You know, I mean, that's, it, it's not really the point is to become experts at something we don't do. But the hope of this whole series is to see God awaken in us the impulse, the yearning to spend time with God alone, crying out to him. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that came towards the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. We're going to look at Luke twenty-two thirty-nine to 44. And the title of the message is simply The Prayer Life of Jesus. We began this sermon series with a a message entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And that was borrowed from Luke 11.1, and it was a flat-out request that Jesus' followers made to him. When you pray, it's like we don't even recognize the activity. When you pray, Jesus, it looks different than all of our other teachers. Something about the way you pray makes the way we pray seem dead and lifeless, So they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They weren't asking to teach words, memorize poems, but simply how to relate to God in a way that doesn't feel dead and empty. And so he answered that with what came to be known as the Lord's Prayer. But I also realized that you can't just learn from someone by listening to what they teach. You learn an awful lot from someone by watching how they live. That's why I'm so thankful that medical students don't just get trained in the lecture hall. You've got to be in the hospital. You've got to touch patients. Thank God for that. Amen? I'm glad they're not just practicing on paper. (laughs) And that's the way it's got to be for us. If we really want to learn about prayer, we've got to look at the way Jesus actually did it. Here's what it says in Luke 22, 39 to 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. So on the day before Jesus was to be crucified, and if you've ever watched Hollywood's depictions, it's graphic, it's gruesome what he went through. Jesus faced that horror knowing exactly what it was going to be like. Most of us face possible theoretical doom in the future, and we imagine what it's going to be like. The crazy thing for me is the day before, Jesus already knew exactly what he was facing. And so... On the night before his death, Jesus does something really cool. He has an intimate dinner with the men closest to him in his life. And at the dinner, he shares from the depths of his heart. He expresses his love for them by washing their feet. And after this wonderful dinner is finished and they're feeling very close to him, he walks out the door and Luke observes, as was his custom, he just walks out and he begins walking to the Mount of Olives. And without a word, no invitation, the disciples saw where he's leaving, and they followed him. Now, in Luke's account, he says he went to the Mount of Olives, but Matthew and Mark further reveal to us that where he went specifically on the mountain was a place called Gethsemane. It means, if you translate it literally, it means olive press. And scholars conjecture that very likely this was a private olive grove owned by one of the wealthier followers of Jesus, It stood in the daytime as a business, but in the cool of the evening, it became a very peaceful place uh, of open clearings, of trees giving cover, and it was a frequent go-to spot where Jesus would go to pray and to gather with his disciples and teach them from his heart. It was an intimate setting, and I think we know what that feels like. Just coming back to Hoffman after 10 weeks away, wandering like nomads to other schools, it's strange how I never went to Hoffman to say it's high school for school, but... Coming back here, I just felt like I was coming home. There's something about the power of physical place, familiarity, that pulls at the human heart. And that's what they were feeling about this place. It was their clubhouse, their little, their little spot, if, you, if you'll allow me that. It was their little spot where they would gather all the time. And what, what's interesting is Luke says, he uses this interesting phrase, as was his custom, meaning there he goes again. This is what Jesus does. He does it so predictably, he does it so often, that everyone who knew him well understood, if you want to find Jesus and he's not anywhere to be found, look in this place, because it's very likely that's where he's gone. The NIV and the New Living Translation translate that phrase, as usual, right? Some of us who are in a marriage are, I'm actually talking to the men here, Um, your wives maybe once in a while say things like this, there you go again, as usual, accompanied by finger or by rolling of the eyes, air quotes, I don't know what else, but it's usually like, there you go again, because the truth is, every one of us, we have well-worn grooves of habit in our lives. We have go-to mechanisms of coping with life, And when life turns up the heat, things get rough, or we feel backed against the wall, we have certain things we do out of habit because they work for us, or so we think, and so that's where we go. And I wonder, because of of Jesus' life, it was said, 
that whenever he was distressed, whenever he was feeling overwhelmed, whenever he was doing too much work and not enough being, but too much doing, he retreated to this spot in this garden and he met with God. He communed with his father. That's what he did when he needed something. When he needed to cope, he went there to that spot, to that situation, to that communion. That's where his heart took him when he was under stress. And I wonder what the people who know us best would say about us. What is our custom? What do people around us say? Well, yeah, he's stressed, as usual, you know, where you're going to find him. Maybe it's a place physically, like a favorite bench at a park or a a favorite coffee shop. Maybe it's an activity. (laughs) I'm going to get you in. You're playing a video game or you're you're drowning and binge-watching shows on Netflix you don't even care about, but you just don't want your brain to open up any space to think about that horrific thing which is coming for you in the night. Maybe it's a person you run to. Maybe every time you're under strain, under duress, rather than running to God, you habitually run to a person. I have people for whom I'm that person. They call me, and there's one person in particular, not in this room now, but who just every time this person feels anything off of perfect, I'm going to get a phone call. I know it. And I know that's the pattern because the, every phone call starts with, I'm upset. I'm like, hello to you too. And let's, let's, let's hear it. And it's not that I don't want to be there for them, but I worry about this person because I've become their go-to place for coping with life. And I know that I am not worthy of that kind of trust. As a person, I try to be decent most days, but there are some days I just suck as a human being. I, I just don't, I don't have any room for it. I want to screen that call. I'm going to go, please, please, for God's sake, stop bothering me. Can you imagine placing your heart in the hands of someone like me? Please don't do it. It's, it's just, just please don't do it. You're going to be so hurt. Where do you go as usual? When stuff gets rough, do you open a bottle? Do you turn on a certain song? Because everyone hates feeling that way, and we've got to go somewhere with it. And the people who know you know where your custom is, what your usual is. It might be good to reflect on where that is for you. But it might even be more courageous, more telling to ask the people closest to you, what do you think is my usual? What do I do when I can't cope, when I'm trying to deal? What's interesting is it also observes here, Luke says, when he went out, what happened here? Oh, I'm sorry. So that was my first point. I forgot to tell you that. His prayer life was consistent. Um, what, it, what he also observes, if you're taking notes, I really apologize, I messed up your paper, is that as he went out to go to his usual place, he never said, guys, come on, he just walked out to go. What it was signaling was not he was making a point or teaching something, but he needed to go to that place. It didn't matter if anybody else came with him. He was saying that, look, you guys don't even know the half of what I'm facing. You look at me, see a little strain. I know what I'm going to have to do tomorrow, and I don't want to do it at all. And you've been there before, haven't you, when something horrible is coming the next day, and people are at the coffee shop with you going, you know, you'll be okay. It's all right. And you're like, 
you're not going to be there with me tomorrow. You just, I know you're trying, but you don't know how scared I am. You don't know what it feels like to be this alone. I'm with all of you. I, I, I receive it. Thank you. But I feel very alone because I'm the only one who's going to have to go through this tomorrow. Have you been there? And sometimes when you're in that place, it doesn't matter what other people do. You've just got to go to that place where you feel okay. And that's what Jesus did. And what's interesting is, without a word, his followers followed him. Where is he going? We just go. And they just followed. And they went. And even if he had a 30-minute head start, they would have known where he was. In fact, this was such a reliable pattern in Jesus' life that when Judas Iscariot wanted to betray him and lead the guards to capture him, without any previous arrangement, he knew where to go. That's the same way they trapped Daniel, because this guy prayed so regularly, they set a trap knowing like clockwork, this is what this guy does several times a day. It occurs to me that no matter how much we try to influence other people with our words, the greatest influence we will ever have on other people is what we consistently do out of honesty, where we really live. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have lectured your children until the sound of your voice makes their sphincter clench. Please stop talking. They're sick of the sound of our voice. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you felt that way about your parents' voice. Oh, gosh, please. And then my kids all already know. It's going to be a long one. I could tell by the way he's setting up. We're in for a good hour. And I could tell by their posture they're digging in. All right. Forget basketball. I, I, this is going to be a long one. They know. And we think we're shaping people by the endless words flowing out of our mouth. You could tell your children every single day, God is our refuge. God is our refuge. But when they watch you spaz out and run for the hills, open a bottle, get into a fight, because there is no refuge for you when you're in duress. When you're in pain, there's no peace to be found in Jesus. That's all Bible talk for church. But in your private home, when you are really scared, you are in pain, you run for the hills. You don't run to Jesus. And 18 years of telling them Jesus is our refuge will not outdo or undo 18 years of watching you run everywhere but Jesus when you really needed help. I'm not just telling you. It also occurs to me that no, no church goes where their pastors don't go. One of my mentors, when I was just becoming a pastor, said something so important to me when I just began ministry. He said, every time you want to criticize something in your congregation, you point at them and you go, who is your pastor? <laughs> I hate that. I, I just really hate that. But it's so honest and so true. I can't say to the church, man, you guys are not a praying church if I'm not a praying pastor. Can I? And so it occurs to me that really the people who follow us don't follow what we say. They watch how we actually relate to God and to the world around us. And that's what they're learning. And that really convicts me as a pastor. I hope it convicts you. I want to point out another thing about the prayer life of Jesus, and that is that it was really proactive. There was a future orientation to Jesus' prayer Whereas if we're honest about it, for many of us, most of our prayers are lightly about the future and mostly about the past. 
we worry about the future, but our real earnest prayers about stuff that happened to us that we can't shake, things that scarred us that we can't undo. But with Jesus, there was this proactive kind of intentionality about his prayer life. And I never get tired of telling this story. I think I've told it before at least once to our church. But I I never get tired of telling this story about my friend Peter. Peter is our ministry partner in Indonesia. He and his wife and their two kids live in a city, the fourth largest city in the country. And uh, Peter is one of those guys, when he lived in Chicago, I was discipling him while he was a young adult just in his first job after college. And he was one of those guys that we call a polar bear. He would wear shorts and a tank top in the dead of Chicago winter, and he'd complain that it was hot. He's one of those guys, right? Always, always hot. So I remember being shocked when, you know, after a missions Bible study, he began hinting that he was being called by the Lord to Indonesia. I didn't know where Indonesia was. But I remember he was picking me up to go somewhere, and it was, it was like August, very hot outside. And Peter was in his car with a jacket on. The windows were rolled up, and there was no AC on. And I sat in the car, and I just kind of thought, did he have a stroke? What's going on with him? So I'm sitting there just waiting for an explanation. He says nothing. So I finally just say, is the AC broken? What my heart was saying was, are you crazy? I feel like I'm going to die. But I just said, hey, is the AC broken? He goes, no, no, no. But this pretty closely approximates 8 a.m. temperature in Indonesia. And Dave, you know me. I don't do well in the heat. And when it's hot, it's not just my body that's distressed, but my attitude and my heart really go to a bad place. I can relate. <laughs> I can relate. Let me tell you, heat turns me into an evil man. Ask my wife. As soon as it's hot, I become the grouchiest, most wicked person. I hate heat. And here's Peter, worse than me, and voluntarily baking himself like a Thanksgiving turkey. I was sweating so much that when we got up, there was, well, you don't need to know about the, the moisture on the seat beneath us, but this is the picture to me of proactivity. He knew that a situation was coming that would test him very, very severely, something that was at the heart of one of his great weaknesses, and rather than just saying, let's go and see what happens, he prepared his body and his heart for the strain to come, and I've got to tell you, after he lived there for about a year, I was amazed at the change in his skin and in his attitude. This man wore a down jacket. First of all, there should be no down jacket should be illegal in Indonesia. He wore one at six in the morning because he was chilly. And I said, Oh, Peter, your simple act of proactive training has borne such fruit. You know, this story, I, I don't tire of it because it reminds me this is the way we really ought to live. We know trouble is coming, and it's okay to pray, make the trouble go away, Lord. But quite often, he doesn't do that, does he? Because it's through that trouble that the best things come out of us. We grow. And so we can pray in honesty, take this trouble away, but we should also learn to pray very, very sincerely, Lord, strengthen me for the days to come. I have a sense that what's about to come is going to really stretch me and my faith and my commitment to you. And I'm afraid that when it really gets bad, I might abandon you. That's a really honest prayer. 
I grew up in church hearing stories about people in North Korea being lined up and run over by a steamroller. I want you to think about that. Because they confessed to be Christians and were recaptured after attempting to run away, they were lined up and made to lie on the ground while a steamroller rolled over first just their feet so they would not die. And then they were given another chance to recant. And I just kept thinking, if I saw that, would I have the courage to identify that I follow Jesus? I'm standing up here preaching to you and I'm expressing that doubt. I mean... I wish and I hope that on that day, I will have the strength to say, yes, do what you will. I belong to Jesus. But if I sensed that the climate of my environment was changing and that was a real imminent possibility, I would be a fool not to pray ahead of time that should such a day come, I will be ready. Too often we pray only after the storms have come and gone. We pray, Lord, what was that that just happened? I just got hit by a truck. What a mess. Heal me, repair me, fix me, help me. And that's okay to pray. But sometimes I think God says, could you maybe pray to me before the storm comes that your house will not be huffed and puffed and blown down? Could you pray? Because that's what Jesus was doing that night. He wasn't just making a point to them. Guys, pray that you won't fall into temptation. He was praying that night for himself too. He was wrestling with this. If there were any other way for us to save humanity, I'll take it, because I don't want to go to the cross. He was wrestling because he needed to be strengthened for what was coming. And he was teaching us, stop being so afraid of the future and ask your Heavenly Father to prepare you for the future. I want you to think about how much joy in your life has been stolen because of fear about what is going to happen, what might happen, what tomorrow might hold. And he says, pray so that when tomorrow does come and those storms you predicted hit you, you will be ready. Well, you know how the story goes. Jesus was praying about a stone's throw. I don't know how far you could throw a stone, but I think it was far enough he got into it by himself. And then he was like, it is way too quiet up over there. So he went over to check out and there they were. You know, just they're, they're out like a light. They're, they're supposed to be praying and they were sleeping. Can anyone relate to that? <laughs> I, I can. And so they kept, for whatever reason, either fatigue, boredom, just being emotionally overwhelmed, they could not stay awake and pray as Jesus said. What he was saying is what's about to happen is going to stretch your faith too. You're not going to know which way is up. Starting tomorrow, your world is going to fall apart. The, the ground will fall out from under you. Are you ready, guys? I don't think you are. Pray so that tomorrow, when all this goes down, you will be ready. Pray so you don't scatter and run. And they could not pray that prayer. They kept falling asleep. And the record shows that when Jesus was crucified in all that swirling chaos, the conduct of his disciples, even his inner circle, was less than stellar. You know what I'm saying. His best friend, his right-hand Peter, the guy who always said stuff of such commitment and devotion, Peter the next day, not only once, but three times, denies with oaths that he even knows who Jesus is. Jesus knew that the storms were coming, and he told them, pray, because you're not strong enough right now to face what's coming. And because they didn't pray, they weren't strong enough to face what came. 
That should be a lesson to us because Jesus knelt and he wrestled with God and he prayed for strength. And the next day, they tore his body apart. And without a sound, he endured it for us. Here's another observation about the prayer life of Jesus. It was private. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. It's interesting. He didn't ask them to follow him. So when they kept walking, man, they're like, seriously, why, why do they keep walking behind me? And when he got to the entrance of the garden, I think what he said is, okay, this is not about you guys right now. You, you, you're going to be affected by it, but I need to go see my father. It's not a prayer meeting. I need to go be with him. So you kids stay here. Try to stay awake. I'm going to go over there. I think there is strength in community. Lord knows we've said that enough here at Harvest. There is great strength in community. And every Wednesday night when I make it out to our prayer meeting, I see the beauty in corporate prayer. It's one of my favorite hours of the week is when I sit around that circle with the people who come on Wednesday nights and we just pray together. I love it. I can't get enough of it. But as good as it is to be together, there are simply times in our faith journey when we have to be alone with God. Part of the reason we're so scared of the world is that we don't know how to be alone with the God who builds our hearts. There's no substitute for the time that we spend alone with God. You cannot outsource a personal relationship with God to other people. Do you understand that? If you have a personal relationship with God, it has to be that. It has to be personal, and it has to be your relationship. It doesn't matter how healthy your church is, how great your small group is. Those things may be blessings, but they cannot substitute for you yourself approaching and pursuing God in a personal relationship. That is the whole reason Jesus died on a cross, is not just so you can pass from hell to heaven, but so that you can go from not having any approach to God, any access to God, to having an eternal, unending, life-giving relationship with Him. It's out of that relationship, that eternal life, that heaven, all of that is formed. Heaven isn't just a physical place, it's the unending state of being in relationship with God. It's not the upholstery or the decor that makes heaven good. It's God being there that makes it good. I could live in a mansion, but if my family dies, that mansion won't be home for me anymore. It is the relationship with God that makes all of this make any sense at all. It has very little to do with morality and ethics and who we vote for and how we conduct our lives. That's all part of it, but it's not the central part. All of those things flow first from knowing and having a personal relationship with God. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus very clearly instructs his disciples on the importance of this, this discipline of private prayer. He says, when you pray, listen to this, go away by yourself. And not just go away, he's talking about going into a closet. This is where we get the whole language of prayer closet. Go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Here's why I think he says that. Because when life hits you, it hits you. Your friends can try to stand by, but you've been there in that impotent place of your friends going through something you can't even imagine. It's a horrific piece of news, and you would not trade places with them in a million years. And they call you up and say, comfort me. And you're standing right there. And you know what that feels like. It's so lame. You're like, 
um, you'll be all right. God loves you. And you're trying to comfort him, but even as you speak the words, you realize how ineffective and powerless that can feel sometimes. Because that stuff is not happening to all of you, it's happening to them. And in that moment, though they are surrounded by many people who support them, the scaffolding, the pillars that will uphold their heart is not the public God they meet at church. It's the private God they meet in the closet of prayer. The God that really strengthens you is not the God of doctrine in public that I preach about on Sundays. That's not the God that ultimately really saves you. That's the God that gets left behind when the pain is too much. It's when that public God becomes your private God. That you don't just content yourself with hearing sermons on Sundays and letting the elders pray over you, but to say, I must know this God for myself. He's not just the God of my fathers. He is my God. And when that happens in the secret closet of prayer, suddenly the God you met in public becomes the God you know in private. And let me tell you right now that when the storms get bad enough, doctrine alone will not give you peace. It is the beginning of peace, but that is not where you will end. When you're fighting, if you're married and you're fighting with your spouse, can I just walk up to your house and go, here, let me give you the doctrine of marriage and recite for you the wedding vows you repeated after me. That should do it. Thank you. I'll just do that and I'll leave your house and everything will be great because I just recited for you the truth about marriage. Who that person is to you in theory. But it's the person you relate to every day. The way you talk to each other, the way you treat each other, the way you serve each other. That's your real marriage. That's the person you're really married to. And when that's lost, it won't matter how much you hear about the office, the institution of marriage. That's not what will save you. Because your personal relationship is so much, so much more important than the public relationship with God. How much time do you really spend alone? Aren't you, especially if you're married with children, okay? I know that for when I was single, like that was not a blessing. I was like, yeah, I spend way too much time alone. I hate it. I want to be with people all the time. That's all I felt when I was in my 20s. Ah, anybody, I just go to the mall. Hey, you know, are you doing anything? You know, like it was just so... De- but as you get older and you get married with kids, that's your fantasy. Never mind winning $100 million. Or, it's just like, imagine a week just by myself. Responsible for no one. Just me. Right? That's like midlife fantasies. (laughs) The truth is, for most of us in this congregation, we rarely are ever alone. And when we get alone, we're so giddy, we often waste that time doing foolish stuff. (laughs) I can watch that movie that my, my partner hates. I can play six hours of video games because she won't yell at me. That's what I'll do today. And we just go crazy, don't we? There is such a power in learning to be alone with God. And those who try to know God but never get alone with him, that's a losing battle. 
you can't really get to know someone you never get alone with. You really can't. There are people that I know who I preached at their church somewhere in New York or Colorado or somewhere else, and they get really jazzed by the sermons. They go, I'm going to, and the one guy in particular, I remember, he listened to a sermon uh, when I preached at his church in New York, and he goes, I like your preaching. I pledge to you that I'm going to listen to every sermon you've ever preached. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, are they online? I said, yeah. Go for, I don't, I'm not going to stop you, but wow, you know, really, you're going to do that? And like a couple years later, he sent me a, a message, and it said, I did it. And, you know, I'm fairly autobiographical in my messages, so you get to know little about me, but I can tell you, I treasure this brother. I'm, I'm really blessed by him. He writes to me regularly. He sends me Christmas cards. But I can't really say yet that we know each other. I respect him. I admire him. I'm fond of him. But he lives in New York, and I met him for a sum total of three days in my life. And I think I'd be a little surprised if he were to say, I know that guy backwards and forwards because I'm not sure that can be true. And I wonder if the nature of our relationship with God is kind of like that. I've heard others talk all day about you. I feel like I know you. Isn't that what you feel about like some celebrities you're really into? It's like if you met them, you're like, I kind of really feel like I know you. And they're like, gross. That's, it's so uncomfortable for me to hear you say that. I hope we can learn to get away and get alone. And for some of us, because we are, if you're wired like me, physical environment matters for a whole lot, doesn't it? And though this is a familiar space, I don't really like this room that much in terms of a place for worship. I'm not crazy about this room. If I were building my own church and budget was no issue, the room would look very different than this room looks. And so as we think about a future building, I want to tell you the elders, we recently talked about a vision we have for um, an, an idea of a prayer chapel that's just beautiful. It's conducive to peace. It has little private prayer rooms that let out from the main area, and all of it is sectioned off from the rest of the building, and you can get into it with a little key code. And this idea came to us from Julie and Joe, who went to a church that had built something like that, and I was blown away by the idea. Can you imagine if you can come to our church building and beep, beep, boop, 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 it could be in the middle of the night, but there's this beautiful room that's just peaceful. It's quiet. And you can connect with God alone or with others, your choice. And that really stirs my heart. I hope that if God gives us a building and something like that is realized, it would just promote more and more the practice for all of us of seeing how important, how valuable it is to get away with God. Let me wrap this up with one final observation. All these previous things taken together lead to this last observation. I don't think we can surrender ourselves to God unless the other aspects of Jesus' prayer life are aspects of our prayer life. See, I don't think I can go to God having not prayed at all and then at an important fork in the road of my life suddenly go and say, but God, I submit to you. I don't think that works. I just don't see it happening Because this is not a God I trust yet. I don't know him very well. 
And if I know that tough times are coming, big decisions are coming, and I've done very little to invite God into my fear, my worry, my weakness, I very much doubt that at the moment when it counts, I'm, I'm going to find this Christ-centered devotion suddenly sprout out of me. And if the only God I know is the God I see in public at church, and it would be awkward to have a five-hour road trip with just me and God in the car, then I doubt that at the moment when it counts, I will yield my heart and my will over to him and say, not what I want, but what you want. Jesus was so honest with his father. I don't think God likes prepared speeches that much. I think what he prefers is when people dig into their hearts and speak honestly from where they really are. And when you are overwhelmed, you can't find the words. Written prayers can be very helpful. They give you the words you're feeling. That's helpful. But I think what God wants more than anything is sincerity and honesty from the depths of who we are. Even if that honesty reveals fear and doubt and weakness, God would rather have your honest weakness than your lies. And we just had an episode like that in our family where where Jordan, who just went off to college, shared with us a real struggle she's having. And we weren't happy about the struggle or what she wanted to do about it, but we were really thrilled that she felt trusting enough of us to tell us how she felt. She knew we were going to be disappointed, but she laid it out there. And we resolved it because she was honest, even though her honesty revealed weakness. See, every time we pray, even though our mouth is saying, God, I want to know your will, the truth is we come to prayer with a will of our own. That's why ultimately prayer is an exercise in surrendering our will over to his. It's an exercise in trust because what we're saying is, God, do I trust you enough? I know exactly what I want. I'm not confused about that. I don't need to pray to figure out what I want. I already know that. The real question is, God, can I do what you want more than what I want. And can I just tell you something? I I don't believe that the biggest obstacle to God's will being done on earth is ignorance or lack of knowledge. It's not that we don't know what God wants. We pretty much know most of the time what God wants. The real obstacle is not willing to surrender to it. I'm not saying there's never times when we don't know what God wants. Am I supposed to take that job over here or this job over here? It's okay to ask God questions like that, but the real obstacle in the world to God's will is not ignorance. It's being unsurrendered to him. We talked about what it means to pray fully engaged. We talked about how our minds need to be turned on, our hearts need to be fully engaged. we got to be emotionally honest. But here's the third leg of that stool. Whenever we pray, our will has to be fully engaged. Do you remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? Here's what that means. That if we ask God to move in our lives, we must also be willing then to be moved by God in that process. If I say, God, work in this situation, but I will not bend to you, that is not a prayer that can be answered. If I say, Lord, fix my marriage, but I will not apologize, I will not soften my heart, I will not forgive, but fix my marriage, that is not a prayer that God knows what to do with. That's like saying, God, take me to Paris, but I will not go to France. (laughs) I I don't know where to go with that, sweetie. 
How can I answer that prayer? When you bending to his will is part of him having his way in this world. When I say, Lord, my life is a mess. I need you to show up. His showing up will move me out of the way. It will bend me. And if I'm not willing to be bent by God himself, I ought not to spend my time praying to this God as though it will make any difference. Because the person he often first moves is us when we pray. He moves us. And sometimes the things that have to be fixed lie largely in someone else changing. But that doesn't erase the fact that he wants to bend you to his will as well. And when Jesus was able to say those eight words that changed the universe, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Our whole lives are changed because he prayed that prayer. That, those eight words changed everything. And the fact that knowing the horror to come, he was able to trust his father's will over his own is very comforting for me. I think ultimately the reason I struggle with God's will is because I don't trust him. I'm scared of what he will do to me if I let go of my agenda. And God says, trust me. I know you're scared, but I'm going to take good care of you. Just let me bend you, and your life will turn out right. I want to invite the praise team to come up. And I want to ask you just to think through some aspects of your own prayer life because I, I really wouldn't want us to graduate from this series experts on the doctrine of prayer and find that we hardly ever really pray in a life-giving way to God. How consistent is prayer your way of coping with the heaviness of life? If that's where you need to park, just park there for a minute as you pray. We're going to respond to the Lord in prayer in just a minute, but is that where you're stuck? What, is, what do people who know you say is your go-to, like the usual for you? There you go. Yeah, of course they're going to be there. Of course that's where they're going to turn. That's where they always turn. What is that for you? God says, if you come to me in that place, I'm going to take care of you. When you know trouble is coming over the horizon and it awakens fear and worry in your heart, Do you know that you can go to God before the storm hits and say, God, that's going to stretch me. Don't let it break me. Strengthen me for what's to come. How often are you alone? Period. And then further, how often are you alone with God? Is the God you know only the public God that is preached from the pulpit on Sundays? Or does this God know your face, your name, intimately? Do you know him? If he spoke in a crowd, would you know that voice? It's the God we know in secret, in private, that really holds our hearts and our lives together. And if that's the God we're coming to know in prayer, then when the real big stuff comes, I think it will be possible for us, like Jesus, to say, Not what I want, but what you want. 
And maybe that's exactly where some of you are this morning. A place of surrender, a need to yield your will to his. And it's hard. It's really hard. So why don't we go to him now in prayer? I'll stop talking. I'm going to invite you to pray to God and to listen for his voice. Let's just do that for a couple minutes. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.